0: Thanks for downloading and listening to a Quick Timeout Out podcast presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. If you're in the market for a shooting machine, look no further than Dr. Dish Basketball's incredible lineup of shooting machines. Their CT, All-Star Plus, and Rebel Plus models have been bought by thousands of programs around the world, while their home model is being used by players all over the country, right in their own backyards and driveways. New to the lineup this year is the Dr. Dish facility model for those with basketball training businesses. These machines are must have for those looking to take their shooting to the next level. To find out more, visit drdishbasketball.com. Welcome into Hoopswarm, a production of Radius Athletics and a Quick Time podcast. I'm Tony Miller, and I'm joined this week by a special guest that I'll introduce in just a moment. Big thanks to our sponsors over at 323 Sports. If you're looking to spend less on team packs this year, check out 323 Sports' famous $55 team packs. Four pieces of apparel, a short-sleeve tee, a long-sleeve tee, shorts, and a hoodie, all $55. To find out more about what they can do for your program, visit 323sports.com, or you can contact a sales rep at sales at 323sports.com they'll be sure to do it right for your basketball program. Special guest today, Randy's not able to be with me, but um, came off the off the bench today. Oh, that sounds like you're a backup <laughs> player. That's not true. Not a backup player. This is somebody that I've had on the podcast before. If you listen to a quick timeout podcast, Coach Mike Jakaki. Last time he came on, talked about lockdown defense, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But just defensive today and modern defensive concepts, I've been wanting to have him back on the show, and if you follow him on Twitter, which he'll uh, he'll direct you to his Twitter a little bit later on, but he does a great job and, and shares a lot of clips and threads, defensive threads, and so he's going to share a few of those today. Mike, you, is this kind of an outgrowth of the stuff that you did with Lockdown <laughs>
1: Defense? Well, Coach, first, thanks for, for having me. I know I got big shoes to fill, so hopefully I don't commit too many turnovers off the bench here. But, yeah, yeah these are kind of just – the thoughts that are really perplexing me these days, you know, things I'm really diving into, you know, lockdown defense really started as just a focus on the on ball technique of great defenders. And, you know, this, this summer, I've challenged myself to just continually, you know, develop myself defensively and continue to look at content and breakdown videos and each day, you know, try and find something new I can learn about defense and, and share that. So these are kind of the most recent things I've been learning and, and diving into and, and you know, continuing to grow the defensive game.
0: So like we usually do on this show, typically try to show between three to five concepts and things that you can show some film that go along with it. So if you're listening to this, I'd encourage you to go over to YouTube, hop over there, type in hoops form, and you'll find that there on my YouTube page. But we're going to show a little video to, tonight. And uh, like I said, four concepts. We're going to start a little bit with talking about switching. Obviously, something that more more and more teams are doing. This is something that actually we just talked about with our team today. So, yeah, uh, in, uh, interested and excited to hear about what Coach has with this.
1: Yeah, and this really stems from the conversation I had on the lockdown podcast. Uh, we just had Brandon Bailey on the podcast uh, now, a current uh, assistant coach with the Pistons, uh, but had spent you know all his years under Brad Stevens. Uh, at, at Boston, as an assistant coach, video coordinator, and also the the G League uh, head coach for the Red Claws, so they switch a lot. Obviously, Boston they've become very proficient at it. It's their base of their system, and the main takeaway from studying the Celtics, learning Brad Stevens and Adoka's system now, and the the point they want to hammer home is that switching should not be a passive defense, right? Switching should be a weapon, it should be aggressive, it should be physical, and so they always talk about steering screens, and so let's jump into it here, steering the screener. That's being disruptive with the player who's trying to set a good screen, because we don't want them to get to that spot that they want to set a good screen, and now they can slip, so we want to jam that screen up initially, making it easier for ourselves to switch or even just stay with our matchup, so you can see in this play, I think this is Marcus Smart just jamming up this kind of horns flare action. Now that screen's really tough. They don't even want to get to the screen. Now that they're trying to get in their action, it's really jammed up. The timing's disruptive. Now he can just pop back, and you can see how easily now they can switch, switch and deny, switch and take the cutter. Because of that physicality, Marcus Smart jammed steering steering the screener. Right. Now if they were just sitting back, point switching, now that that slips a lot more deadly now that shooter's coming up, getting ready to catch the ball and now we got to defend. Instead, they steer the screen, they be physical, and it leaves the heat in a 1-on-1 situation. Again, here, this time we have the Pelicans, I believe, trying to set a similar split action from an elbow catch. And you can see they're jamming up this screen or as he's going to set that away screen making sure he doesn't get inside the three-point line, now it's easier for this guy, the player who's about to switch, to get under because that screen is so high because they steered it, and now his job's a lot easier also to switch outside of shooting shooting range. I'm always looking for, Coach, ways to, to add physicality to our defense in a, in a legal way, but in a way that won't put us drastically out of position, you know, trying to slam and bump cutters. And this is a great way. You're coming together on a screening action. It's a great time to apply some legal physicality. And that's really got to be part of your defense. Again, here comes the split action. Both players really tagging and jamming up their guys, making the split action timing off
0: and making it easy to switch. So off the ball, yeah. you're on the weak side of the floor because mm-hmm. you're more in help. Is yep. there not really any steering that goes? It's more of just like if something's set off, that you just kind of like exchange that? Or did he mention anything about that?
1: Yeah, no, we didn't dive into that, but I 100% agree. You know, weak side screens, you know, you're trying to maintain that that help position. And so getting physical from a weak side perspective does get you out of position. Um, these were really elbow catches, split actions from the post. Uh, he talked a lot about anticipation cues where you know they train their guys every time the ball hits the elbow we want to body up to the corner guys because you know the most common action in the NBA ball hits the corner i mean the ball hits the elbow they might you know go into a chicago action or some kind of action involving the corner so they want to body up and you know get ready for that steering action get ready for those actions so anticipation cues you know where on the floor are we most anticipating an action coming when the ball gets placed there uh, you know, it's to set us up in some physicality. But, yeah, they're mainly the actions are occurring one pass away, you know, mm-hmm. to your point. They're not, you know, two passes away. We're not jamming everyone in a stagger action. Now we got three guys,
0: you know, all bodied up, and now we're playing, you know, one-on-one on an island. The best basketball coaches are relying on data more than ever. That's why coaches love Huddle Assist. With assist, you can get full game breakdowns, including complete team and player stats, in less than 24 hours. Your stats are ready when you need them. And assist is more than just the box score. Use interactive reports like shot charts and advanced stats like lineup data, VPS, and, of course, effective field goal shooting percentage to coach smarter. Plus, assist brings your stats to life. Combined with HD quality, automatically captured film from the Huddle Focus Smart Camera, every stat is marked on the video at the moment it happened. See every shot, turnover, rebound, and much more with just a few clicks. Want to see how Huddle Assist is elevating basketball? Visit huddle.com/slash. Visit huddle.com/slash/assist. That's huddle.com/slash/assist to learn more. All right, second concept you want to cover is. Disruptive control, and this is one of my favorite
1: concepts and gets back to really the roots of, of lockdown defense and studying, you know, guys that could just get after the ball at a high level. And this clip uh, was taken of Avery Bradley. Uh, I put it on my YouTube channel. I mean, my uh, Twitter channel. I've got it from a YouTube. He's just talking to Avery Bradley about how he defends, and you can find it on, on Twitter. Um, a lot of people seem to like this idea uh, and it's, it's a huge concept. And a lot of players are hesitant defensively to apply pressure to a ball handler because they feel, you know, like they can get exposed, right? Like if I apply pressure, this guy's more likely to blow by me when really, sometimes your job is a lot harder when you're given that space. Cause now they're setting you up, you know, they're doing all their combo moves, they're setting you up and now they're really attacking you, making you move, shift laterally. Now you can really misstep, right? Whereas if I'm applying pressure. You can see in this clip here, Kobe's applying pressure on LeBron. Now you can assume LeBron only has one option, right? The only option he has is really to attack this way. Now Kobe, as a defensive player, gets a step ahead of the offensive player because he knows that's the only way he can attack. So now he can start anticipating that, reacting quicker, and cutting that off as soon as he tries to go, right? And we'll see another clip here of Avery Bradley doing it almost – I mean, I I can't imagine going against this guy defensively in his prime. You can see he picks up the ball at half court. This pressure, right, this pressure, intense pressure here, there's really only one way to attack him, right, is going to the middle. He knows that. And so as soon as he sees the offensive player start to inch that way, he's going to immediately cut it off. Bang, turn the player. Now what's the only option? To attack the other way. Again, it's disruptive control because he's one step ahead of the offensive player because of his pressure. The pressure actually makes the offensive player more predictable one of my favorite drills to try and instill this idea is the one-on-one pressure box uh, and so we you know we just use the paint usually uh, we sometimes set up cones and to be honest with you i created this drill as an offensive drill to, to help our guys handle pressure you know through through setting you know defenders and this concept i realized how great of a defensive drill it was becoming as well and so the offensive player has to stay in this painted area and the defensive player has to, for 30 seconds, apply airtight pressure. And every time the offensive player can get an arm's length separation, let's see. So that was almost an arm's length separation. Uh, but if they do get an arm's length separation, they call out one point and for 30 seconds, they're trying to create as many of those point separations as they can. And the defender is trying to apply disruptive control, stay airtight, start to anticipate where the offensive player has to attack don't let him combo set up you you apply pressure dictate the action what i also like about this drill is it's a safe space for the defender to try something new right we're not just setting him up in a one-on-one full court drill and he tries to put pressure on and then he gets blown by right and then he goes i can't do it right this is a safe space just like we build up offensive drills right? If we're building up a shooter, we wouldn't just stick him at the three-point line and say, fire away, right? We would set him up close in, get him used to making it, see the make, see the make, see the confidence grow. Same thing with defense. We kind of want to limit the space so that their confidence grows and they start to learn this mental concept of disruptive control and pressure. You can see this, this player executing a lot of we call them scarecrows here but chest in it right catching it with your chest showing your arm so you're not fouling in these tight situations but again the offensive player i mean you only have a couple options right you, you have to attack now you have to change directions and what tends to happen is the guys fumble the ball offensively because it is a tight space and they're dealing with pressure and i have to remind our guys constantly guys that's blood in the water right when a shark smells blood in the water they pounce they attack don't give him time to just, you know, the ball just rolled off his foot to half court. Now he picks it up and he now attacks you with a full head of steam, not blood in the water. Go keep applying that pressure. Uh, and so I th- I love this drill. Uh, you know, it creates the mindset in the players that we can dictate players and, and offensive action. We don't just have to be spectators and reactors.
0: I absolutely love this. And I don't understand why this isn't more commonly taught or communicated and the reason that i feel that way is because when i get the players a lot of times mm-hmm. with new players coming in they feel the defense is just as as you mentioned kind of reactive or they're at the another way to put it they're kind of like at the mercy of the offensive player Yeah, and then from that perspective it, everything does become reactive and it's very difficult to then keep that player from gaining an advantage because a lot of times their lateral foot speed is lacking, especially, you know, as you make that jump mm-hmm. from high school to college, and now they're trying to guard somebody who's bigger or as big and faster. And, and when you can control or at least predict where they're going, I think that can make up for even if you are, let's say, like two players, offensive defense, if you, even if I'm slightly a little less athletic or not as quick, I can make that up. We've said this for years. Like I can make that up with taking better angles or, and when I know he's definitely going that way, I can, like you said, I think that being one step ahead can Mm -hmm. make up for being slower or not necessarily knowing exactly the best angle to take or whatever. Instead we're like, he can go either way a lot of times. And some of us are like, no, we're, (laughs) we're at the mercy of the, of the other player. And Mm -hmm. I think like we take a step towards that by saying, well, we don't allow to the middle. So they know the only place he can go is one direction, but still, if you're not necessarily physical with them, you're still a little bit at their mercy. They're still going to be able to kind of, kind of gain the advantage at least for a while until you figure stuff out. At least that's what I felt with, with kids coming from the high school levels to the college levels. And I'm sure it's like that, you know, from the Mm -hmm. junior high to the high school levels, anytime that you make a jump, one of the biggest places that we see that is on the defensive side, and I think this concept would help at least a little bit with kids having more success early on, keeping that player kind of neutral and not as quick quick to give up a blow by. Yeah, and and listen, I get it. I've coached
1: you know plenty of defenders who who struggle you know on ball, and you know sometimes they do have to you know use more smoke and mirrors and take better angles, uh, but you can't just let the guy be comfortable. Right. I mean, you you might your pressure might be a little different than, you know, getting hit the hip like an Avery Bradley, like these guys in the pressure box. It might be a lot more stunting and a lot more, you know, stab and retreat get in, get out. But it it can't be a comfort level where they can just attack you. You know,
0: 100 percent agree. One more time, just to make sure the physicality of it. Are you (laughs) talking about like body to body or just like talk us through this? Just real quick. One more time. Yeah. So uh, physicality to me, defensively,
1: I mean, you know, the head coaches I've coached for Listen, I've never been a person worried about fouls. Uh, That's just, that's just in my, you know, I rather be a physical team than a team that doesn't commit any fouls. Um, And so we are going to set the tone early. We're going to be a little more physical, use a little more hand checks, and we're going to dial that out, dial that back. You know i rather pull the rope back than try and, and push guys forward and so when we're talking about pressure uh, that means you know getting into them getting into their airspace making them not be able to just have the ball in one hip you know making them change the hip of the ball because we're taking away one hip and now you know as they start to dribble now we change we cut them off with our chest our physicality comes when they try and move Right. Or, you know, when they're stationary, we want to heat them up. We want to have a hand above ball. We want to get into their space, out of their space when they're passer, when they're driver. But when they start to drive, we want to catch every dribble with our chest. Right. And that might be different for some guys. They might need to cushion the first one and then, you know, catch it with their chest. The some guys who are very skilled defensively with their footwork and speed, first dribble, like Donovan Mitchell at Baylor. I mean, every guy that tried to drive against him, that first dribble, he was getting stood up by their chest. Right defensively i know a lot of coaches are scared about fouls and i want to touch that in a moment but if your defenders are moving laterally and slightly backwards that's legal guarding position the defender has the right to move backwards as long as they're not at an angled stance if they're squared up moving backwards that's a legal guarding position and so if the offensive player and the defender player moving backwards and laterally get hit at the same time with their chest that could even be a charge. We call that a Scotty Pippen charge because I show film of, of Scotty Pippen taking those charges all the time. Back to the fouls, I actually did a study a couple years ago looking at 5 years in the NBA and 5 years in the NCAA Division 1 trying to figure out if the age old adage of great defensive teams don't foul, right? We all know, you know, Greg Popovich is a big believer in it. You know, Bo Ryan was a huge believer at it you know, we don't want to foul. It's bad defense. You know what the study showed? No correlation. There is no correlation between fouling and great defensive teams. In fact, the Warriors are a prime example. They've been a top 10 defense, I think, since Kura has gotten there. All right? It might have been down one year, but they've been top five, I think, most of those years. They were top three they were second i believe last year in defensive efficiency behind the celtics i believe and they were top three in fouls given and they've constantly been a top 10 fouls given team same thing with the miami heat these physical teams they're going to give fouls now the thing is you don't want to give up the stupid fouls. you don't want to give up the the foul for a a guy taking a pull-up jump shot you never want to foul a jump shooter but you also don't want to give up layups you know layups are more valuable than foul shots and foul shots are not a good shot either so no dumb fouls but no easy back buckets either and if we get a couple hand check calls as long as we stay out of the bonus or sending guys to the line i'm gonna live with that that physicality is something i'm gonna live with and so i i'm not a big believer in toning back fouls i rather i rather be too physical to start a season than than not physical at all
0: all right Concept. This is what everybody's here for. So go ahead and give them their money's worth.
1: So this next thing is the closeout debate, and this has been a, a huge topic. If you've been following the lockdown blog or the podcast or anything lockdown related, the closeout footwork has been a huge debate, and I think it's even you know picked up a little steam as now coaches you know are, are converting more to this one-two stop, this stride stop. And i just wanted to figure out what was ideal because i've been kind of leaning to that stride stop you know just sprint to stop Um, you know you see it a lot in the nba you see studies in the nba that back it up as being more efficient and also being more efficient at containing drivers but let's dive into the film and and see what we find right i've always been a big believer in the film doesn't lie and so chopping your feet the age-old you know teaching point it controls momentum can make it easier for guys who are slow-footed, you know, the the stop, their momentum. And you can see some good examples here. But the downside is, as we've seen in those examples, is that it slows you down. You're chopping, especially if you're sprinting, and then, you know, you're teaching your players to, you know, chop their feet sometimes 10 times. You know, if we go back to that practice drill, it looks great, it sounds great, Right. But the the truth of the matter is, we're really slowing down our momentum. And if the player just wants to elevate and shoot, there's going to be space to do so. Right. So you have a slow recovery into that impact zone. And if you don't have an early hand, you know, if you don't, early hand is, is a must in your closeout. If you don't have an early hand and you're not getting to that distance of impact, the shooters are just going to shoot over you. Now, the positive about chopping your feet, which I agree with, is. Because of that slow momentum, you do have a slight cushion if they decide to put it on the floor. And so that slight cushion should give you an advantage in cutting off a player. The flip side of that is the sprint to stop footwork. That is just to go from a sprint to a stride stop. And some coaches will be like, my players can't do that. You ask them to do that when you, they're going for a live You ask them to go full speed and land on two. You ask them to come off a ball screen at full speed and then elevate for their jump shot on two feet. Same thing defensively, right? So it's not out of the norm. You can see some NBA examples here. Sprinting, one, two. Boom, right into the shooter's, shooters airspace. The good thing about that is just like if you're doing a vertical jump, if you want your pliers to leave, be second jumper, contest at the point of release type of stuff, it's gonna add to their spring, right? <laughs> a One, two into a jump is gonna be more effective than a chopping your feet into a jump in terms of getting vertical. It's a lot more difficult though to contain a driver, right? Because you are getting really tight to that airspace and you're usually at an angle, right? Because that one, two stop like you're touching a baseline, right? You're angling your stance to push off. You're usually going to have a pretty steep angle for a guy to attack you. And it's going to be tough to to cut off. Every time you're angled as a defender, it's going to be tough to cut off that angle. The second thing it does is if you're not getting close to the hip, it can expose your top foot, which is probably the worst thing that can happen to you defensively because now you got to swing your whole body open. Uh, And so it has its weaknesses and it has its strengths you're exposing your top foot, you're getting closer to disrupt shots, but you're also more susceptible to drives. And so we have this yin and yang, right? You have the chopping your feet, which is more likely to give up shots, but more likely to contain. And you have the stride stop, which is more likely to you know disrupt shooters, but more likely to give up drives. And so you have coaches who swear by different techniques. And And listen, I understand why the NBA has embraced the one-two stop because it is a game so predicated on three-point shots. The efficiency of three-point shooters is better and better the levels you go up, right? Leaving an NBA player open like Clay Thompson is a lot more deadly than leaving a high school player, even if he is a great shooter, just because of the frequency of them making that shot and the consistency of them doing so. Whereas in the high school world, paint touches get into the foul shot layups are a lot more consistent in terms of giving you points than three-point shots. So that variance can lead you to, to decide one or the other, right? Or you can go to the middle ground, which is, I think, whenever there's a debate, if you just look at what's the middle ground, you probably find a good solution, right? The solution is usually not one of the extremes. And so a four-step um, stop is something I really believe in. You can see uh, Paul from PGF Performance. He's talked about this as well. One, two, three, four. Beautiful, right? You get the, the best kind of a both worlds. You get that chop, this control, the momentum, but then you get the one, two to get into this space. Hopefully you're getting the best of both worlds, but it's also something that players know, right? If you watch any player sprint their hardest, you tell them to go touch the baseline and come back. There are players that run and just stop on a dime and push off. There are players who need a lot more breakdown, but most players are going to take a one, two, three, four push off. So it is common for for most players, right? It is a footwork technique that most players have some prior use of. So that's kind of where I've landed after studying it for I don't even know now two years, going back and forth about it. Whereas you know four step breakdown, trying to get the best of both worlds.
0: I would encourage coaches to think about like what is your overall philosophy Mm -hmm. for the half court within the half court. Like what, if you're trying to take away three point attempts, you better get out there as fast as you can. And the extreme of that, as you mentioned is what the NBA is doing, but that's their philosophy. Their philosophy is to run guys off. I know not every team, but I heard an, an assist, a current assistant coach stand up at a basketball clinic and say, our goal is to run them off the three point line, but also understand the implications of that. You better better than spend a whole lot of time helping rotating off to, to other people. And I would venture to say most of us at the college and the high school levels are, are probably not devoting the amount of time that's needed to be able to do that. Plus, there's probably not people at our level who are shooting it at a clip that are worthy of, of that. Maybe some of us. But to your point, then the other extreme of that would be, and maybe this is you. I was just talking to a high school coach about this last week. He was like, I just want my guys to do the short choppy. Nobody at, at my level is going to beat us by just right. hitting nine threes. So we do short choppy, but then everything is about containing. And I think that then is the key there. Like what's your overall half court philosophy? You know, for us, probably very similar. Both of coach and I are coaching at the D three level. If a guy is standing out there, he can probably hit the three point shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I got to get out there to, to acknowledge that. But then I also don't necessarily have the, have the manpower to, always be running a guy off the three-point line and then everybody always be rotating and this yeah. is that balance that you said between i'm able to take away or at least contest the three-point shot while at the same time containing the drive without always knowing i'm going to have to be in defensive rotations 100 yeah, percent.
1: and just to follow up on what you just said i think there's two points right i think number one I talked to Tony Bennett, right? Well, I was at you know, he, I was in a room of him talking. I guess I, I won't give myself too much credit, right? Uh, I'm a huge believer in what Virginia does. They've been top, I don't know, ten in a closeout efficiency, I believe, in the last. They've been more, more in the top five of closeout efficiency than any other team, right, in the last six years. So, what they're doing closeout wise carries a lot of weight to me. Right, I'm watching their practice and listening to their coaching staff. And honestly, dive, trying to dive deeper into what they teach from a coaching perspective and how much they spend on footwork and hand placement and things like that. And I have other coaches at that, you know, at that same threshold who I really respect. And they all kind of come back to the same thing where they're not spending hours and hours talking about these minuscule techniques. They're more driven towards what the player naturally does. Um, and if there's a problem, they're going to correct it kind of like how we treat jump shooters, right? Like a guy might have a funky looking shot, but if it's r- really highly efficient, we're probably going to let that slide a little more. And if the player with a funky shot is really struggling with his shooting, uh, then we're probably going to step in and, and help him. Right. And so I think sometimes we do overcoach in these school technique driven uh, philosophies, whereas you know what's your principles right our principles to get there arrive in the early hand and the second thing i wanted to mention is we're talking kind of about the worst case scenario right the worst case scenario is a guy has the ball and we're still trying to cover distance to close him out mm-hmm. the best case scenario is we're arriving on the catch right? and the more that's a big thing with me the more we can train our guys to i call it steal second base right like a pitcher you know a first baseman on the base he's looking at the pitcher he's getting ready he sees the wind up he takes off for second base right he's trying to beat the throw same thing with our guys right we want them to be active base runners you know one pass away two passes away we're active we're fidgety we're ready to recover to our man at any moment as soon as we see two hands on that ball we got to start anticipating start reacting Virginia does a, a tremendous job at arriving on the catch, and that's why they can stay out of so many of these closeout situations where footwork really doesn't matter because you're there on the catch. And and so that's that's kind of the two things I just wanted to, to end with closeouts. You know, maybe your guys are predisposed to do something that is beneficial to their their skill set. And the second thing is, you know, let's try and avoid closeouts altogether, and let's let's get our guys arriving on the catch. Let's focus a little more time on that to avoid these situations.
0: Yeah. And if coaches weren't listening to that, we were working on that with our team this week of the arriving on the catch. And that sounds good. And everybody agrees with that. (laughs) But I think what that, what they think that means is like, okay, the ball is passed. We got to be fast to get there. And it's a whole lot more than that. It's like, where are your eyes? And to your point, Mm -hmm. when a guy goes to pick up the ball, he's either shooting it or he's passing it. And in both cases, I'm going to find the guy to, go hit and go get, or I'm going to go to contest the closeout. And I think that's really the key is teaching. We spent, we spent time this week on a, you know, multiple drills of look, make sure that you're looking at the ball to see when that guy picks the ball up. I, that's when my initial move towards my man should be so that I can arrive on the catch. Yeah. It's never, it's never a very easy solution. It's a culmination of things or uh, several things put together and it all starts with, being able to look at and see and identify this is my time where I need to start moving towards my man so that then I can contest the shot. So that's a really good point. hundred percent. I mean, we've even in the lockdown
1: camp, which I hosted at Middlesex where I just came in and, you know, coach was fortunate enough to allow I me mean, to work with those guys for, you know, three hours a day. Day three was like close out day. We brought out the baseball bases, right? We, we just had fun with it instilling this, this concept sometimes it's nice to have a break from basketball and now we're experiencing this fun moment yes but right after it we're learning these valuable lessons that apply to our basketball skill and you know we've even taped down bases right near our players in our shell drill so that guys know like you got to get to that base before the ball does Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's good all right you've mentioned you know multiple times the lockdown defense and the different forms and mm-hmm. offerings that you have now available with that. Can you talk about each of those? And then also, I'm sure people are going to listen to this and they're going to want to ask you more questions or see more of it so you can connect them or direct them to where you want them to go, whether that's website or social or anything else that you think would be helpful.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, anything that comes out lockdown defense-wise, you can find on my Twitter page at Mike underscore Again, those platforms are going to be blogs. This week we had, you know, I took, a, I took a week off, refresh, get some more content going. But the Lockdown blog, you can find it at Lockdown Hoops where you can get clinics and all that stuff and also see the, the blog, which is, you know, hopefully a daily content source for new defensive ideas. Uh, that will be on Twitter. That will be on the blog, lockdownhoops.com. Also, we have a podcast every week uh, where we get great guests on who I respect defensively, just to talk about different details of defense, and we also have deep dive episodes where we focus really deeply on one topic and how to teach it. And then the last platform is just YouTube, right? We have a YouTube channel. We're getting ready for a, a big video that we've been <laughs> that, that really has been a long time in the making. Uh, Draymond Green defensive breakdown. It's going to be jam-packed. I mean, he's such an intelligent player with his off-ball awareness, and it's going to be fun to break him down. So those are things to look forward to. Again, follow me on Twitter. And if you haven't bought the Lockdown book or heard about it, if you like this content, uh, there's a whole book of it worth, worth reading, hopefully. So you can find that book on Amazon as well, Lockdown Defense Developing Elite Defenders.
0: I'll be sure to link that below. I have a copy of it, and it's a ton of great stuff. So be sure to pick up that copy. Thanks to all of you who joined us this week. If you missed any part of the live show, you can go back and watch or listen. Search Hoops Forum on YouTube to find the full episode of the show. Or you, if you're more inclined to listen, you can go to any podcast platform and search a quick timeout. And there you'll find the full version of the show. For our guests, Mike Jagaki. I'm Tony Miller. We'll talk again next time on Hoop Form.